This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, it's 7.06, Monday the 6th of March and you're listening to The Morning Run. In front of me is Chong Jensen and I'm Wong Xiaoning. Now in about 30 minutes, we'll discuss the key takeaways from China's annual National People's Congress. But let's recap how global markets closed last Friday. So US markets, they were all in the green. The Dow was up 1.2%, S&P 500 up 1.6%, NASDAQ up 2%. Asia markets were a bit more mixed. The Nikkei was up by 1.6%, Hang Seng up by 0.7%, Shanghai Composite up by 0.6%. The Straits Times Index and the FBM KLCI, they were both down by 0.1%. Okay, so for some thoughts on where international markets are heading this week, we speak to Stephen Innes, Managing Partner at SPI Asset Management. Good morning, Stephen. Always good to speak to you. Let's talk about currencies first off, because the US dollar has strengthened in tandem with the US Treasury yields. Now, we know that's because the Fed remains very hawkish on rates. Can we assume that it is still the reign of King Dollar for 2023? Well, it's probably very data-dependent, call. I think if we're looking at how central banks have reacted to stronger growth data that's come in uh, this year, much higher than expected, because remember, we're basically pricing in recessions in both Europe and in the U.S. for this year. Um, yields have gone up everywhere. I think where the surprise is sitting uh, in the U.S. markets particularly is actually the strength of the data really surprising everybody because people had anticipated that these higher interest rates that would slow growth and also bring down inflation that hasn't happened yet so i think the risk currently right now is for possibly a higher fed fund rates which could drive yields higher and attract more demand for dollars but ultimately those higher yields will have to have a negative effect on the u.s dollar or sorry the u.s economy at some point and i believe that's when the dollar turns i can't you know, precisely predict when, but I think we have to watch how the data devolves uh, over the next uh, three to six months. And Stephen, your quick thoughts on the Fed fund terminal rate. Where do you think it will land? Because the street's now expecting 5.6%. Yeah, I think that's too high. I think what we're going to see is the data revert. I think there's a lot of seasonal adjustments that occurred in the inflation data. I think those are going to revert back down to the between the five and a quarter and five and a half. I'm not quite as hawkish as what the market's pricing in here. I think we're looking at equity markets last week. I don't think equity investors are actually as hawkish as what some of the future prices uh, are, are indicating right now. And Stephen, also on the topic of currencies, the Chinese yuan is starting to weaken against the US dollar again after staging a rebound in the last three months of 2022. Is this a positive or negative for ASEAN currencies, currencies which, uh, which have deep trading links with China? Yeah, I think it's negative uh, because primarily we use the yuan as a bellwether for overall Asia sentiment. <clears throat> and really, it's driven how China's growth is uh, recovering. Uh, however, I, you know, I caution a lot of the moves that we're seeing in the open today that are getting driven on back the NPC. Um, what we have to really focus on is how the data will evolve in China. And we're looking at last week's PMI data, which was very, very strong. We have what so-called data dump coming up uh, in the markets uh, this week. I think the stronger, I think the data coming up will probably reaffirm that a lot of these people who were skeptical of the China recovery were wrong. I think the data is going to come in strong. Once investors see the strengthening data in China, I think that's what's going to attract 
more interest in Asian currencies. Look, I don't think we're going to have the demand that we saw in January, mind you, because of that Fed hurdle mm -hmm. we just discussed. Those higher yields tend to act like a you know, a minor wrecking ball um, across a lot of the Asian assets. So I think we have to sort of pare back our expectations for strength in the uh, RMB and also strength in the um, in the ringgit. Uh, I don't know if we're going to quite reach the strength that we saw uh, early in January. Okay, can you help me understand this exact point, Stephen? Because if you, you rightly pointed out, the ringgit is weak. It's down 1.6% against the US dollar. But we seem to be moving in tandem with the Korean one and the Japanese yen when it comes to, sorry, Japanese yen when it comes to weakness and not following the rest of the ASEAN countries, which are actually appreciating against the US dollar. Uh, can you help us explain this? Is it because we are more correlated to the Chinese currency? If you look at those three economies, those three economies uh, export a lot of uh, goods into China. And I think you hit the nail on the head there that uh, yeah, closer ties uh, with the uh, China through the export sector. And I think that's why we're seeing it from a competitive advantage. You have to remember if one competitor's currency weakens, well, you know, the odds are that the other currencies are going to try to central banks are going to try to coax the currency slightly weaker. But yeah, in this market, it's very complicated. I just think what we're looking at right now is correlation analysis that's driving that rather than any central banks driving that because I don't think any uh, central bank in a global inflationary world outside of the Bank of Japan, perhaps, that doesn't have any inflation in Japan is really looking to have a weaker currency at this moment because they certainly don't want to be importing inflation. And Stephen, on Thailand now, its central bank sees the Thai economy growing between 3 to 4% this year. Is that a reasonable forecast or do you see, see it heading higher than that? You know, it's very optimistic. I, it really boils down to, um, you know, if we look beyond what occurred in the fourth quarter, which was relatively weak. Um, but we have to remember that the travel boom didn't really happen. We're just starting to see mobility pick up in China towards the middle of February. Uh, and I think that's going to grow. And I think those expectations for a strong rebound in, in Thailand's GDP are really centered around the travel uh, industry. And we think those are still optimistic, but I think the low level is quite achievable around 3%. Okay, let's talk about Japan. Um, you know, if we look at their bond market, are you worried that it could actually see a global sell-off or do you see it actually Im immune to this sell-off, especially with the new bank of uh, Japan Governor Ueda you know, coming in? Well, I'm expecting them to make some minor tweaks on the yield curve control mechanism because it's just an untenable balance when you have you know, U.S. yields uh, you know, scorching higher and, and, and the Bank of Japan's holding, trying to hold their yields down at 0.25%. It just doesn't make any sense in any normal kind of monetary global environment here. So I would expect the incoming, or perhaps even Broda before he exits, is going mm -hmm. to start making an adjustment on the yield curve control. What they, what they could do, is something that won't be that aggressive, but it'll still lead the market to perceive that they're moving into a normalization, uh, nor a normal course would be to adjust their buying from 10-year down to five-year notes. That would allow the 10-year yield to float up higher and it become a little bit more in line you know, uh, with, with other global 10-year interest rates. But 
they're still really worried about the recovery. And I still think they want to keep the short end of the market quite flush with cash. So they're not looking to hike interest rates anytime soon. So what kind of recovery are you looking at, Stephen, for, for the Japanese market? Among the, let's say, the G7 nations, where do they rank oh. in terms of you know, vulnerability to a slowdown? Oh, I think I think Japan will it'll, it'll do well internally. I think they're trying to keep consumer spending, and and that's a good thing. And I think they're also dri- dri- driving to push wages up, and that's really another good thing. That ultimately stimulates the economy. I think just like everybody else, uh, every other nation in in in, um, in Asia, is that they're really really subject to swings uh, in other Western uh, economies, particularly the U.S. Right now, the U.S. consumers are still spending. If that starts to turn uh, towards uh, the latter part of the year, which a lot of people are expecting, that the economy will start to struggle in the U.S., well, this could be a bit negative towards the end of the year. But I think between now and then, I think the Asian economies continue to do okay on the exporting because we have skirted a recession in Europe. Mm-hmm. and. By all accounts, we've skirted a recession in the U.S. so far. So I think things should remain okay on the on the export fronts. All right. Thank you very much for your time. That was Stephen Innes, Managing Partner at SPI Asset Management, giving us his views on, you know, the king dollar. Is it going to remain in power, the top of the tr- of the pack? And the mo- for the moment, yes, it seems so. But there will come a time where that will reverse. I think that's very much linked to what will be the terminal rate. Stephen doesn't think it's 5.6%. Yeah, I think on China, he thinks that the skeptics on China's data, he thinks they will be proven wrong. They think he thinks the data will probably come in a bit better than expected. The RMB will strengthen and that may potentially help support growth in ASEAN as well. Okay, let's turn our attention to Twitter. Yes, it's no longer listed, but I think a lot of it, uh, well, a lot of us in the investment community still pay attention to it. And the Wall Street Journal reported a 40% year-on-year drop in revenue and adjusted earnings for the month of December after many advertisers ditched the social media platform following Elon Musk's takeover. And the CEO, CEO Elon Musk is also working to stabilise the company's finances, which have also been challenged by high-cost debt. So Twitter is responsible for repaying some $13 billion US dollars of debt that helped pay for the acquisition itself. So annual interest payments are estimated at about $1 billion US dollars. The company recently made a first interest payment to a group of banks that lent the $13 billion. And one way that Musk intends to boost Twitter's revenue is through the sale of paid subscription to users starting at eight US dollars per month. Okay, so what has he done? Uh, like you say, paid subscription. Now I'm reading on Bloomberg. Apparently, he has hinted that the company aims to roll out the ability to reply to individual DMs, and they would also make the use of reaction emojis and encryption available on the platform in March. So I guess it's all about monetization, right, when it comes to Twitter and getting more eyeballs on it. Uh, fun fact, Twitter has posted a net loss in 8 out of the 10 years from 2012 to 2021 and hasn't booked an annual profit since 2019. So super popular, uh, but still, actually, doesn't make any money. Now, very quickly, Adani, we know that their woes continue, but they're actually extending a worldwide roadshow as management seeks to reinsure investors that the company's finances are under control. I know they went to Singapore, they went to Hong Kong. Now they're meeting fixed income investors from March 7 to 15 in Dubai, London and the US, according to people familiar with the matter who spoke to Bloomberg. 
Yeah, I wonder how, what sort of re- reception they've been getting from their roadshow so far, how they've been able to convince investors and whether they will be able to really recoup some of the market cap loss in the coming months. Or recoup some back, uh, recoup back some of the reputation, right? Yes, I, mean, I think these that, are, that is probably more important. Yeah, I mean, all these are alleged allegations by, of course, the short seller Hindenburg Research, which claim that, you know, uh, Adani Group is part of one of the largest cons in corporate history. Adani has, of course, come up to deny all this uh, but nonetheless 153 million uh, sorry billion wiped out from market value after this uh, so much so that Adani himself his personal wealth has tumbled by more than half to just slightly less than 50 billion uh, US dollars at one time I think he was the third richest man in the world by the way Elon Musk back to number yep. one <laughs> uh, but up next we'll be covering the top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning stay tuned for that BFM 89.9 You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.